Hi, I'm uh, Matthew Pusty, and this is my fantasy funeral. Imagine you are dead, but you get to design your own funeral. What songs will be played? Who will deliver your eulogy? And where will your remains rest forevermore? This is the scenario presented to my guest today. I'm Ryan Briegel, and you're listening to my fantasy funeral. Today my guest is a musician and composer who for the past 15 years, under the name Makeup and Vanity Set, has created moods of dread and delight his arpeggiated synths soundtracking both real films and the films that play in your head. His releases are thematic and well-planned, complete with artwork that matches the magic and the horror often found in the music. Last year, he released an album of electronic songs of love and longing with vocalist Jasmine Cassett under the name You Drive, and he provided the music for two hugely popular podcasts, Atlanta Monster and the second season of Up and Vanished. Now he has underscored the follow-up to Atlanta Monster, this time around focusing on the infamous Zodiac Killer of the 1970s. I certainly cannot imagine music that better invokes both mystery and paranoia to accompany that particular story. He is Matthew Pusty. Before we talk to Matthew, let's hear something from Makeup and Vanity Set's album Shadow Circuit. This is The Zone. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for that introduction. Absolutely. We are going to kill you off today and take a look at the funeral that you would plan for yourself. But I wanted to start by asking, is death something that you think about very often? Sure. I definitely think that there's an age that you get to where mortality becomes more real, especially when I got into my 30s. I felt like uh, that's the age where, uh, you know, reality kind of sets in that uh, people get sick or, or people around you will start to pass away. Older people will start to pass away that you've known. And uh, it definitely starts to make you think uh, differently about things and maybe how you spend your time, I guess. So. And you have two children yeah. now. Yeah. So did your thoughts about your own death change after they were born? For sure. I think uh, like when my daughter was born, I think it was more of a like, I'm just trying to survive this because it's crazy and you don't know what you're doing. Um but then as you kind of get more, you know, used to being a parent, I think the 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 real struggle becomes, uh, you know, trying to make sure that they're, uh, you know, taken care of. And, and when you start to think about like, oh, no, I'm responsible now for this tiny life that's running around, 
uh, for sure you start to think about your own mortality because you're like, oh, no, what happens if X, Y, Z happens, you know? And people start telling you, well, now that you have kids, you should definitely have a will, you know, that kind of thing, all the formalities of whatever. And, and yeah, that's that hits hits you like a ton of bricks, I feel like, so for sure. You grew up in Ohio, mm-hmm. um, born to artistic parents, I believe. Yeah. Some um, creativity there. Yeah, my dad, uh, my dad is an architect, uh, and still is an architect and has been doing that for his whole life. And my mom was a uh, photographer and a painter and she taught art. So yeah, my parents were all, all in on being creative and, um, uh, just expressing yourself, um, and, uh, just very open-minded people, which was always looking back on it now, I'm especially thankful for. So, yeah. Did they push you into like music lessons, art lessons, that kind of thing? It's it's weird because like as b- being a parent now, I think about it a lot with my kids. A lot of people go, well, you know, you're a musician, so do you want your kids to be musical? And I'm like, well, I just want them to be happy, you know. And I think I had that from them. I think they were very much like, do what makes you happy, you know. Go go find a thing that you're passionate about and just do that all the time, you know. And I definitely got that from them at an early age. Um, and and through that all things were accessible you know it was like you want to paint or you want to draw or you want to do these things that's fine neither of them were especially musical people but they they loved music and uh and that was a a great gateway for me um because i you know thankfully i had parents that when i looked at them and said hey i want to go to college and study music they were like okay sure you know see what see what happens go for it it's not uncommon for teenagers that get into music. They play guitars in the garage. Yeah. And you did this some. Yeah. But... Um, it, initially, I gravitated towards guitar. I think, you know, when you're young and you're, like, skateboarding around town and stuff, the impulse is, like, I'm going to go find friends and play in a band. And I always found that, um, you know, listening to, to guitar-based music uh, at the time, which would have been, you know, we're talking, like, early, mid-'90s, basically, um, you know, there was a lot of like punk rock aspirations and things like that. And, um, that was fun, but it was never especially serious, I guess. And it was also a real challenge to find people that you could like cobble together that were good at music. And so that was always a big challenge too. Maybe the trouble finding people to do that, is that what brought you to the decision of maybe I should just focus on doing things myself? I think the real transition for electronic stuff was just discovering music that was made with synths you know and that was a real transition for me you know when I when I was like in middle school you know it's like skateboarding around town and basically just being up to no good and like playing guitars and then um I think at some point I had a friend who came over and was like you know had a copy of like Pretty Hate Machine or something and it was like oh this is different this is very angsty and emotional and like uh full of synthesizers and I was like I can relate to this I really think this is cool because it's different you know I grew up listening to like my mom had you know like Pink Floyd records and Led Zeppelin like she was that era and she came into that kind of stuff and my dad was a big like Motown guy and liked a lot of jazz music and liked a lot of uh classical music so I had like all these different things coming from all over the place and so by the time I arrived at like synth-based music it was more um alien you know so completely different you know and um i just i I really enjoyed that and i was like okay well how do i make music with a synthesizer did they have their record collection around when you were a kid they did they did um i have a lot of my mom's old records and um yeah i have fond memories of my dad and i like listening to 
like the Blues Brothers soundtrack and stuff like just weird, random, like things like that. But then my dad would have like Vivaldi records and things. So we listen to like the Four Seasons. I've been in conversations with people where like they put down Vivaldi or they'll say like, you know, that's like kind of coffee table, you know, uh, classical music or whatever. Like personally, I think if you look at the music I make now, it's essentially it's a it's a moving bass note under arpeggiation. It's Vivaldi, you know, and so I think that had a lot of a huge impact on me as a young person, like the complexity of it and and the way that things are structured. Um, I think was always it was always rattling around in the background. Well, we may not hear any Vivaldi or Nine Inch Nails no. uh, today, but you do get to choose the five songs that you would like to be played during your funeral. Yeah. Uh, what is the first song you've chosen? The first uh, song I chose was uh, Kings of Convenience, a song called The Passenger, which is off of their first record, uh, Quiet is the New Loud, I think is the title. Uh, I don't always hear words when I first hear music. So if I listen to a song that has lyrics... I could probably sing you the melody, but I couldn't remember any of the words. And it was this kind of very uh, subtle uh, acoustic thing that I really was just really into. I was really into the way it sounded and how just soft it was, and it just really hit me hard. But there's there's a lot of lines in it that I that really you know stood out to me that were you know about loneliness or about um, you know figuring something out that seems like it's impossible to figure out. And that's what I always appreciated about the song. And no matter how far or how much distance I go in musically to whatever lengths in, a, in some direction, I always end up coming back to this song because it just means a lot to me. The voice I'd heard in the hall was hard to recognize Passenger from the album Quiet is the New Loud. Very early on, you seem to crave anonymity. Has that desire for masks, literal and figurative, lessened at all over time? I don't know. It's like a useful device. I think when I started, it was more of like a, I'm trying to make some kind of commentary, right? Like I'm on stage, but I'm still anonymous. And then I think over time, I'm sure there's all sorts of Freudian things you can read into it, but I think that there's... There's definitely a layer of, I can I can still be me, you know? Unfortunately, and it's been one of those things where it's gone on for so long now, I don't know that I could really ditch it successfully. But I also, like, um, I also just, I respect it for what it is. Like, I find it's humbling, I guess. What's your relationship with playing live? Do, does it excite you? Is it a necessary thing for you to do? No, I hate it. I really hate it. Um, and the mask is part, kind of, you know, part and parcel to that. I think that uh, I've always been like a high anxiety person. So the idea of going on stage is really terrifying. And the idea of going on stage and being responsible for all this equipment um, is really terrifying. 
when I went on tour, it's like I encountered all these kids that were like, hey, I have this record and it really meant something to me. Like it, yeah, I had a, I went through a struggle, you know, and this record like helped me or something. There's this gratitude that I found in that. And that, that reoriented my whole perspective on it. It was like, no, 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 I can, I can enter into this uh, thing that stresses me out and I can, you know, just accept the fact that, uh, you know, it was always a struggle to sort of, it was a struggle for me to figure out why I was on that stage, you know, um, and if I belonged there at all. And so I think having that music and putting it out there and letting go of it and then hearing those stories, I'm like, that's great. That record is that person's now. It's not mine anymore. That That's always been, that's always been a really, really great humbling experience. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. And I, I think I've found more gratitude in, in being on stage now, I guess. So. Um, why don't you tell me about the second song you've chosen? Uh, the second song is uh, a song called The Big Ship by Brian Eno. Um, he was the guy that sort of looked at the studio like it was its own thing, like its own instrument, rather than just the space that you created music inside of. And as a kid, I remember reading about him and and being fascinated, because my fascination as a young person was always like not necessarily... Obviously, it certainly wasn't being on a stage, and it certainly wasn't, like, writing songs, so to speak. It was more like, how are are sounds made? Like, how does this record get made, you know? And I was way more fascinated with the the complexities of, like, producing the song, producing the sound um, was always way more interesting. And so when I... When I really dug into Brian, you know, and what he kind of stood for and, and represented, I was always really, um, I don't know, I was always really, really fascinated by his whole approach and, and kind of what he did. And at that point, I think I had been listening to, you know, the Ambient series and reading about all of the history and the weird, you know, almost mythological, you know, status of those records. And um, yeah, the big, the big Ship always really spoke to me. I was really appreciative of it. Brian Eno and The Big Ship from his album, Another Green World. Matthew, death, or at least the fragility of life, seems to be a theme or influence your work at least every few years. Mm -hmm. You have said about your 2015 album, Wilderness, Mm -hmm. I tried to make something pretty dark, mainly because I had to. In that time in my life, I had to get that out of me. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about that? What brought that darkness on? So Wilderness was a record that I started... um, it was very distinctly two halves. I started the thing and started making it. And at the time I was working on it, my mother was going through um, what was the beginning stages of basically two years of chemotherapy that ended with her death. Um, she had been diagnosed with ovarian cancer. And, you know, at the time, I think music, it seems, I think it's really cliche, I guess, to say, like, you know, music saved my life or whatever. But I think. 
music had this such a, a galvanizing place in my life at that point. Like I needed that to process. I think when uh, you know talking about being faced with mortality, like that was a big one because all of a sudden I'm like, you know, this person I really really care about is gonna gonna leave me, you know, and and in a in a way that I had no idea how to process, and so I just did it through music and I wrote half of the record and then she died and I felt like in a lot of ways my life was sort of self-destructing around me you know in my family my mother was the sort of emotional tether she was the one that I could call and be like hey these things happen and I, I need to process this and she'd always kind of be there and she was also the one who was very she was very much like the creative uh you know guiding light in a lot of ways like she was always the one that encouraged me and and so when that was gone, I was kind of like, I don't know. I I felt in a lot of ways like I was in no man's land. You know, I just didn't know where to go. And I went back and tried to work on the, the songs I had, and I, I just couldn't. I just couldn't work on it for a while. So I took a break. And um, when I finally did come back, I realized that the record was really two halves of this story of, you know, illness and, and then loss and grief. And, uh, you know, and, and the the title was not uh, arbitrary. You know, I really did feel like I was kind of in the wilderness at that point. Like I just didn't know where I was going or what I was going to do. I was coming off of making, uh, I'd made a record before that um, that was called 8888 that had done um, really well. And I, and I felt like, hey, this is really cool. I would love to keep making music. You know, this is like really fun. And uh, and then I made that record. And it was so dark and it was different, and I wasn't sure. I remember having so much anxiety during that process of like, I don't know if people are gonna like this. Um, but I knew, like deep down, that I had to do that. It was like the only thing I could do at that point. You made a series of albums bearing the name Charles Park, mm -hmm. and the third in that series, released in 2011, mm -hmm. was created after a particularly harrowing uh, car accident. It's what true. happened? What happened there? So it's kind of if you if you backtrack a little bit so my my mom called me and was like hey I've been uh, diagnosed with cancer and it's terminal cancer and I remember like okay and being really confused and so I told my wife I you know I should fly up and see her I need to go there so we booked a flight and then she and I got in the car to drive to the airport um, it was like a few weeks later I was gonna fly up so we're on the way to the airport and someone cut us off on the interstate and we rolled and like had this devastating like car was totaled I don't really I still to this day don't really understand how either of us survived. The thing about coming away from that is that my wife had PTSD for a year and couldn't drive at all. Um I would struggle with like bouts of like severe anxiety driving. Um but I also realized the power of um when you have this kind of unstoppable force, right? Like something happened to you that's really awful and no matter what you do, uh you'll never have a sense of justice, right? Um, you know, the guy drove away, they didn't catch him. And it's weird because I would literally get in my car and I would have to like forgive that guy. It was the only way I could like survive that whole thing. I was like, no, I have to like give that away because I knew if I held on to it, it was just going to eat me alive. And that record was part of the catharsis of that for me was like, I'm going to again process this um, through music. And so I kind of made this sort of you know, vigilante style record, um, which I don't know if that says bad things about me, but, but I just, I, I, I did the thing I had to do again. Um, all the records after that, I was like, I need a purpose for that. It can't just be like, Oh, I have eight songs and that's a record. Mm -hmm. Like it was, no, I need to, I need to 
a guiding principle here. And then really, I think unbeknownst to me at the time, that was sort of also pushing me in the direction of scoring because scoring is that, you know, when you're scoring something, you have this guiding principle, it's a collaboration and you have this kind of thematic thing that you're shooting for. So those, those processes, I think, opened that door for me, I guess, weird, weirdly. Uh, tell me about your third song choice. Uh, my third song choice is a song by The Cure. It's called The Figurehead. It's off a record called Pornography. and the figurehead from their album Pornography. Matthew, why that Cure song especially? The figurehead always stood out to me because it's very, um, it just feels like everything is turned all the way up. Um, but also I know that, you know, when they were making that record, the band sort of hated each other um, and that specifically, uh, you know, Robert Smith was um, at the end of his rope you know, and just was like, I'm either going to, you know, cash it in and kill myself or I'm just going to make this crazy record and get us kicked off of our record label uh, contract. Um, and you can hear him when he's singing, you know, he's singing through it. It's like it's it's there's a lot of pain there, you know, and the whole record is that way. But um, that one in particular has always really stood out to me. And I think the reason the reason I would want something like that at my funeral is I think that uh, people need that. I remember I've, you know, in my life, I've been to funerals a bunch of times, too many times. It's the people that come up to you that kind of give you a kick in the ass that are the ones that you really need. Mm. Um, And to me, that song is that. It's like, yeah, it's okay. Like uh, some of the best advice that was given to me after my mom passed was that it's okay to be sad. It's okay for you to grieve now. Like it's okay for you to, to weep now. You know, like that's okay. You're allowed to do that. To me, that song embodies all of those things. It's the kick in the ass and the crying and everything else. So, Absolutely. Yeah, Cure comes in for the save, yeah. Thank you, Robert Smith. Yeah. Uh, earlier Makeup and Vanity Set albums have featured the vocals of a Nashville songwriter, Jasmine Cassett. Mm-hmm. Um, and last year, you released a full-length album of songs under the name You Drive that mm-hmm. the two of you wrote. Anyone familiar with her twisted country duo, Bird Cloud, or even her more, I'd say, Baroque-sounding solo work, might think her voice would be an odd match with your music. Yeah. But anyone who has heard the album knows what a genius pairing it is. When you first featured her on a song, how did you know it would work? I didn't. It's just one of those things you always feel, I guess. And, I mean, we'd known each other for a while through our, like, circle of friends. And I ran into her out somewhere, and she said, you know, it'd be cool to do something together sometime. And I remember thinking, okay, yeah, cool. And I remember at the time she told me that I had things going on in my life that were, like, heavy. And I remember thinking, like, okay, cool. And then I kind of didn't do anything with it, you know. And I ended up having this song. Uh, the song was called Homecoming. And I, um, you know, sent it to her. 
And the thing about jazz is that you have to, um, there's just no way to deny the fact that she's really smart. Like the way she writes and the way she sings and the way she comes up with the melodies that she does. Um, I feel like I just feel super lucky to work with her because she comes up with these things that are always brilliant. It's true. Like I, I never feel scared when I send stuff to her because I always know whatever she sends back is going to make it so much better. I think Wilderness was the one that really locked it in because I had told her kind of a little bit about what it was about. And it was like the songs that she sang. I remember one of the songs she sent, uh, I remember playing it the first time with her vocal in it to hear it. And uh, my wife was in the room. My wife started crying because it was so exactly right for what we what would that record was. And I think it's easy to take that stuff for granted. But I loved, uh, you know, the experience of making the U-Dry record. I thought that, um, you know, I was just super lucky to, to have that collaboration. And it's just one of those things where I always, you know, whatever she does, I look forward to it because it's always awesome. So, yeah, she's a wizard. <laughs> You filmed a video for the song Home and My Love from that album, and yeah. which appears to be an homage to the 1985 video for the song The Perfect Kiss by Manchester group New Order. Yeah. Was that your idea? Um, I think early on we just wanted to do a really static um, performance video. Um, we didn't want to make a big deal. We didn't want to do anything over the top. Uh, we had actually had like a number of uh, ideas that were kind of pitched at us for that for that record. And in the end, uh, I think it was kind of like one of those, like, yeah, this makes the most sense. It was like, no, we should just do something um, that feels maybe a little awkward and is just kind of, you know, the let the song do the heavy lifting, basically. Um, and, yeah, I was really, um, really grateful that we had that experience. I think uh, my buddy uh, Joey Chicoline directed it. And um, uh, Michael Eads has a little cameo eating sandwich. And my friend uh, Cal Dykes is in it. And it's just, I don't know, I don't ever, I feel like everything I do is a series of happy accidents, basically. Like, cool, we'll see what happens now and, and just go with it. So that was what we really set out to do with that album was make something that was about love and loss and all the craziness that comes with falling in love and not necessarily, not necessarily all good stuff, you know. So Sure. Do you anticipate more You Drive records? I really hope so. Yeah, I really do. We've we've talked. There's been talk. So tell me about your fourth song choice. My fourth song is a it's a song by a Frenchman named Sebastian Tellier. The song is called Le Ritonelle. Sebastian Tellier and La Ritonelle from his album Politics. Matthew, what 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 does that song do for you as and why would you see it at your funeral? There's a there's a composer named Arvo Part who I'm a, a huge fan of and he has this belief that if you just have the perfect notes, right? If you have the perfect kind of 
palette sonically and you have the kind of perfect sequence that you can create you know this perfect thing and it doesn't have to be elaborate it doesn't have to do crazy things what I love about the song is it's like I don't know how long it's like seven minutes it's essentially the same thing over and over and over again but it's like I guarantee you that and I have always felt this as a person who makes music I have I'm pretty sure that that you know Tellier's in the studio and he or he's at home or wherever and he just comes up with this thing and he realizes this is perfect I don't need to do anything to this it's a beautiful pr- progression it's um it's a you know uh the the drumming and everything is really perfect like everything about it is perfect and it's just nice and that's what I like about it you know so yeah sit at my funeral and, and sit through seven minutes of that and enjoy it you know just chill out and enjoy the music so before we hear your final song choice, have you thought about the person you would choose to deliver your eulogy? I have. Um, so I've always been in a film my whole life. I would say by far, I would not go to see a show and go home and be like, I'm so moved that I'm going to write music. But I can't tell you how many times I've been to see a film and I'm like, I just need to write and do things now and get this out. And uh, when I was in high school, I discovered Tarkovsky. I almost feel like I want to cheat and just bring him back from the dead and then just sneak him out of the, the funeral so he can just go back, back to making movies. But I love uh, I loved everything that he did, but I also loved everything that he said. He had so many good things and insights. Again, I had open-minded parents, so we had the Independent Film Channel uh, when I was in uh, high school. And so I was introduced to so many things like Jarmusch and uh, you know Kurosawa and like all these really great films. Um, but I knew no matter what, I would have so much to unpack uh, with Tarkovsky's work. And so he's uh, a Russian filmmaker. Yes, a Russian filmmaker, and he's operating in a place uh, that's, you know, not easy. There's a lot of censorship. There's a lot of things that hoops that he has to jump through to make films. Everything is essentially, I think, subsidized by the government there, and so it's it's a challenging uh, place for a guy who. Uh, just has unlimited vision. Is there anything particular you would like for him to read? Yeah, he has a famous, uh, there's a famous book about him uh, called Sculpting in Time. And the quote that I love from that is, um, what moved me was the theme of the harmony, which is born only out of sacrifice, the twofold experience of love. It's not a question of mutual love. What nobody seems to understand is that love can only be one-sided, that no other love exists, that in any other form it is not love if it involves less than total giving it is not love it is impotent for the moment it is nothing Tarkovsky obviously very emotional guy um, he, he always said it was wise for young people to learn how to be alone and I spent a fair amount of my youth um, finding isolation like seeking isolation and, um, you know, as a kid being, whether I was angry or, you know, angsty or whatever, or, um, I always felt like there was something, there was some space for me there where I'm supposed to be learning something. And, you know, when I saw, I think the first, uh, Tarkovsky film I saw was probably, uh, Andrei Rublev. And then probably shortly after that, I saw Solaris and Solaris really affected me because it was this whole idea of being confronted with the thing like whatever you could want and this idea that like it would be too much for us to bear and um i totally agree with that you know i think that there are we have constraints on us 
as people, I guess, because if we had no constraints, we would just, we wouldn't make it. Like we just couldn't. And, um, and I think life is a lot of that, you know, we've come to your fifth and final funeral song. What is it? Uh, John Taverner, uh, the piece is called funeral canical. So my father's family came from Poland and, uh, his whole family was very, uh, just hardcore Catholic. I never connected to Catholicism um, for many reasons, um, but something about the the regal sense of like how Catholicism is presented um, always appealed to me. And Catholic churches, especially old Catholic churches, are sonic structures. Like they're beautiful, but they're designed to carry sound because in a you know when they a lot of these old old churches don't have sound systems. So they're designed so that sound will project. And as a kid, I grew up listening to like, you know, uh, in church, you'd hear a lot of choral pieces. And I always would find myself getting, um, getting lost in that kind of stuff. But this piece in particular always really, really appealed to me. Um, and I didn't know it. Um, I didn't know this specific piece until I saw Terrence Malick's film Tree of Life. Uh, which is probably where most people have heard it and will recognize it from. Um, and that film, you know, begins with a quote from uh, Job in my in the place I was in in my life, which, you know, was around my mom's illness and all this stuff. And it just spoke to me. It was like, how much suffering is too much or is how much is enough, you know? And um, it was hard. It was a hard time, but that, that piece really spoke to me. And again, it's the same principle as the Tellier track. It's, it's something beautiful. Um, and I always appreciated that. John Taverner and Funeral Canticle, performed by the Academy of Ancient Music, found on the soundtrack for Terrence Malick's film, The Tree of Life, Matthew Pusty's final fantasy song choice. Matthew, have you thought about where in the world you would choose for your body to end up? I think that um, going, taking, taking it back to Poland would be what I would do. And I think, I think as I get older, there's so many conventional things that I just really get turned off by. Um, you know, uh, buying furniture is one of those things, like just the conventional everyday, like, you know, mowing your lawn a certain way, or just the, the sort of, uh, expectations of, uh, well, I have two kids, so I should do these things a certain way. Uh, At some point my kid will be in a class and they'll be like, what does your dad do? And they're going to have to say, you know, he writes, music with synthesizers and sits in a room all day and does and it's going to be weird and different and it's not you know I'm not a banker I'm not I don't have these other things but I think that um you know to me there's something really powerful in like saying well that's where my my family came from so why would I not want to go back there I mean I guess I could spend a bunch of money for a plot in a cemetery 
because that's what society does. But to me, I'm just like, nah, like, you know, just, just, uh, take it back to where it all started. Perhaps know? start your own family plot yeah. in Poland. Yeah. I don't know. And I think there's just something interesting about, uh, it's such a weird experience going home after you leave, right? You come back to a place and it's changed. It's different. Things are gone. New things are added. Um, and so there's just something absolute about that specific location that it'll, it won't ever change. You know, it's, it can add and build new buildings or whatever, but that's still the, that's the spot where the family came from. So I've always wanted to go back and visit. I haven't been, so it's on the list. So yeah, maybe I'll pick out a spot when I'm there. We'll see. I hope so. Yeah. Uh, well, this has been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Matthew Pusty for taking us through your fantasy funeral. We close today with a song from Matthew's collaboration with Jasmine Cassett. This is You Drive and Royal Blue. My Fantasy Funeral is brought to you by We Own This Town. Full versions of the songs chosen today can be heard on our Spotify playlist. Find out more at myfantasyfuneral.show. I'm Ryan Briegel. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 